0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I figured I'd share a couple of photos uh, that I found on the Google images this week that uh, reminded me of uh, U.S. History in the class that I used to teach. Of course, you got to start with old George Washington at the Valley Forge. And, um, and so uh, I guess Becca Kilpatrick in this uh, last service, she told me that she's put them all in chronological order this time, so uh, this should be good. But anyways, um, what an epic photo, right, of George Washington. How did we ever win that war? And like, it was the number one world power in the whole world, and we were just a tiny little scrappy nation, and we were colonies, and somehow we won this war. And that's just crazy to think about George Washington as like this crazy general, as well as the first president of the United States, you know? Uh, Then we've got... Um, Abraham Lincoln. I guess in the next chronology, me and my wife, Kyra went to uh, uh, Washington D.C. this last 2020, January 1st, and we were sitting there in the little mausoleum thing, the Lincoln Memorial, and uh, basically, um, there's just grown men in there crying. They're like weeping, reading the second, you know, inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln about how people died and gave birth to a nation, and you know, for people by the people, and she'll never, you know, be removed from the earth, and all this kind of thing. It's just. A crazy, crazy thing to look at. Um, next, I picked uh, the Model T. What is America without cars? You know what I mean? You got to have the automobiles. It's like nothing more Americano than right, race car driving, I guess, right? Or originally, before the Ford Taurus was the Model T. And, uh, and so, you know, um, Ford's idea is just wasn't about invention. It was about consumerism and the ability to get people to go where they wanted to go, wherever they wanted to go. And this vision of, you know, having a car, it's like such a, I think, iconic American thing is the Ford Model T. Uh, another picture I picked was uh, the suffragist movement in um, the early 1900s that were leading up to women's right to vote, and so women played an amazing role in our nation's history, and they are, you know, the voice, the voice and the mouthpiece of reform movements and temperance reform and. Um, and education hospitals and so forth and so just the female identity within the United States of America is profound you know in in other countries maybe there isn't such a prominent role of of women being at the forefront of different identity markers of nations but ours certainly does and it's pretty incredible to watch Uh, another picture that I found was uh, old baby Ruth huh how about this guy huh oh this one's first okay Um, the sad picture before the happy one I guess Um, I would have thought. Anyways, uh, so the Great Depression, you know, the migrant woman and just the picture that uh, somebody from the New Deal was hired to take pictures of different people in the Great Depression to capture that. And what did it mean for the Americans to, like, roll their sleeves and get through the Great Depression? What is it an identity other than overcoming obstacles together? And what did it mean when we faced the same obstacles and came through them together? And so the Depression was very much shaping, I think, our identity. I remember teaching this in history class, Babe Ruth, the salt and swing And so what is more American than baseball itself? Next slide. Uh, Eisenhower, both a general and war hero and president, which is crazy. I like Ike from the 50s. Next slide. Uh, the grandpa generation. Nobody kisses like this anymore. I feel like we need to do these things. This is great, right? The guy came home. It's v, VE day, I think it was, at the end of, of World War II. And so they're coming home and smooching. And I don't even think they got married, but that was the picture. And it's uh, nothing more, more American than that, right? Dr. King himself, I mean, I remember getting chills listening to the uh, African-American history class in college, and Dr. Lester Lehman, when he was talking about this, and we watched the whole video from beginning to end. It's just, you cannot uh, help but be shaken and be moved by this speech, you know? Like, people try and use and push power and get people to unite over common causes, but this Man, I mean, he was like 27 years old or something like that when he gave this speech and was finishing the speech on the way to the podium and uttered these words, I have a dream that all men would not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. I mean, it's like this crazy epic, you know, speech that's given between the Lincoln and the Washington Memorial. Uh, Next slide. And uh, 63, right? So yeah, you're right, two years earlier. But uh, Neil Armstrong, uh, uh, one small step for um, man and one giant leap for mankind. I mean, can you think of these pictures? There's nations out there that don't even have two or three of these pictures of these heroic, epic moments. But somehow in the 250 years of our nation's history, we have all these I- iconic moments. There's this clarified identity of, of you know, what, what America is. And I, I remember teaching back in, in history class, you know, it's, it's not the system that makes America, it's the identity It's the Babe Ruths and the George Washingtons more than it is the Constitution or the Declaration or the Bill of Rights. There's plenty of places, you know, that have democracies. There's plenty of places that have free market economies, but not every every country has a pronounced, you know, identity. And so as we get into the scriptures this morning, um, Peter is speaking to these scattered exiles. If you've been following along with us, we've been reading through Peter. And if there's any one theme that he says in the very beginning, this is written to elect exiles. Wherever you are, whoever you are, The problems you have and the opportunities do not define your spiritual status. You are an elect exile and you are chosen. It's not by chance that you're seated where you are, having the money that you have or not have, or the problems that you have or you don't have. If you're in a poor country, if you're in a persecuted country, if you're in a thriving whatever uh, market economy country, you are not defined by your circumstance. You're defined by your chosen. You're defined by your election. And so Peter is speaking out to these people, these people who are missing their identity. They're missing their icons, their stories, their narratives. And he's speaking to them and he gives them three distinct pictures of what it means um, to be a believer. I think that's important in a time like this because if you guys haven't noticed, like if, if somebody in this day and age doesn't know who they are, um, there's plenty of people that will want to tell us who we are. There's plenty of things in our circumstances that want to uh, convince us about what our identity is. And Peter's telling us in all circumstances, persecuted or not, persecuted in the, in the, in the original context that he wrote or in the place that we are today, it's, it's incredibly important that we remember who we are. I think it's important to know these things because I think more more than ever um, we are walking through um, a season both in and outside of church it seems of, uh, of some bit of disillusionment and and in many ways, I've heard a lot the the shakings and tremblings of um, of uh, deconstructionism of of redefining um, identities and wanting to um, understand what true identity is uh, versus false identity and I think that a letter like 1 Peter um, will, will speak to exactly that. All right, so if you have your Bibles, it's in 1 Peter um, chapter 2, and we'll be in verse uh, 4, starting in verse 4. And uh, Peter's speaking to elect exiles, and he's trying to talk to us about who we are in all circumstances. And we're finding out that um, in finding real hope, we, we uh, lose our, our false hope. And in finding out our real home in Jesus, we can lose our false home. And in finding out our real identity, we can lose... Um, we can let go of and surrender false selves. So this is what he says. He says, um, he says as you come to him, Peter says, um, you're coming to the living stone, the capital S, living stone. This is the way he refers to Jesus. And he says, now this stone, uh, it's a capital stone. It's, it's the chief cornerstone, he's going to say in a moment, a few verses down. But for the most part, it's rejected. There's a stone out there, he says, to build life on, and for the most part, people walk by it, and they reject it. But even though humans reject it, God continues to choose Jesus. Jesus is precious to God, and you also, you that believe in him, are like living stones. This is what Peter says, and you're being built in this spiritual household. And so he's referring to the temple, we'll look at here in a minute, Um, where the temple, which was in the middle of Jerusalem, was built with stones, with practical, tangible, brick-and-mortar type of stones, you know, Uh, but this temple that is being built in and among the church, is what he's saying, according to your identity, is not built with physical stones, but with spiritual living stones, and it's building up this spiritual house, and it's representing what's called the spiritual priesthood, and it's offering a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in order to insert and instill identity um, the, the Apostle Peter understands that he needs to portray physical icons. He needs to give us visuals to help us understand what it means to be a person that is an eclectic exile, that is scattered from home, but truly always home in Jesus. And so he gives us three different pictures. It's not the U.S. history pictures, but it is a picture of, first and foremost, the temple. He is drawing us back to um, an Old Testament place and time that uh, was, was created by David and ultimately Solomon after him to be a meeting place for God and man. And so it wasn't God's idea because God said he would meet in a tent, but man decided that he wanted to create a virtual or a physical rather, not a virtual, a physical place that God and man could meet, that the priest could go, make intercession, make offerings, burn incense, offer prayers, and that God and man could meet in that place. And so when Peter wants to talk about our identities, the first thing he locates for us is this place. It is the temple. So uh, he is describing a shared space between God and man in the temple. The second thing that he says about you and I is he points us to the icon or the picture of the priest. This is the picture of um, somebody uh, who was anointed, potentially through Aaron's line or potentially anointed um, through another way to go before God on the behalf of man, and would bring different sacrifices and offerings and burn incense and pray and go before the Holy of Holies and be a mediator. And so he has a linen robe to represent righteousness, a shining breastplate that represents kind of a, um, a glory um, uh, transcendent thing. The way that Moses, for example, came down the mountain with glory. And he has this kind of uh, crown, if we go back to it, a kind of crown which which refers back to this idea of a royal priest, that priests in our day usually means people that kind of stay in a vestibule and they stay into the religious sector, but they don't get involved into the state. But you've got to understand in the Jewish idea that there was no separation between church and state, and so the priest carried a level of care, but also a level of authority. And so there it is, the second definition that Peter wants us to know based on this image of the priest, that we are like priests, we are holy priests in the sense that we are go-betweens between God and man. Lastly, the, the temple has priests in it, and every priest has a sacrifice. And so the sacrifice is the thing that's offered. When the heaven space and man space can't live together, the priest goes into the middle to be a mediator between what's above and what's below and offers a sacrifice both for the atonement of individual sin, but also for the sprinkling of defilement and the vandalism of impurity that happens within the land. And so again, just as a review, uh, it is, um, he is comparing every believer in this room or in that room is a temple. We are living stones built up to build a temple. We are living priests or royal priests that are meant to be intermediates between God and man, and we are living sacrifices. We are not going to die for the sins of others, but rather Jesus has died for us, and so we live our life as him or as an extension of his his will with his spirit inside of us. And so as a review, as exiles, Peter calls us, living temples, royal priests, and living sacrifices. Now, this is all super lofty, and so I thought of this little analogy to kind of bring it a little bit closer to home. Um, How many of you guys have ever been to the Apple Store before, right? Isn't the Apple Store so great? You walk in there, and it's just a different environment. It's just they spray something in the air that just smells like money or something. I can't figure it out. It just smells like creativity, and anything could happen. And there's pictures on the wall of all these different people of tribes and tongues, and everybody's on Apple. I mean, if you're anybody, you're on Apple, you don't have a green text message, you have a blue text message, right? So that's exactly what it's doing. Create an entire identity, and they have this space. And it's not the whole mall, but it's one little space, right? And it's a sacred set-apart space. There's only one thing that goes on in the Apple space, and that's Apple stuff, right? Don't go into Apple, bring in your Android and all that green text message mess get in there with a blue text message, right? So there's a sacred space and it's a kind of a temple and you might even say it feels a bit like holy shrine, you know what I mean? Like you can't talk too loud and if you broke the iPad, all the cops would probably tackle you and a guy with a, you know, black sunglasses might escort you out into a SUV or something. And so there's a little temple and so what what do you got in there? Well then inside that you have, you know, the the little little, little blue guys, the little geniuses and they have these little iPads, you notice that, right? And they come to represent Steve Jobs to you, and you back to Steve Jobs, right? <laughs> okay, and so Steve Jobs, he's got all these things he's trying to sell, and he knows how to fix your iPhone, and he's there, and if you have a problem, you can't go to the Holy of Holies. You can't go back there to the little Apple Genius Bar. You don't belong behind the Genius Bar. You're not a genius. You need a priest to go on your behalf, right? That's what the priest is. So the little genius guy, he comes back, and then, and then what happens? is You go to the altar, and you pull out your wallet, and you give the sacrifice. There it is, right? <laughs> you give the $9,000 for the fixed phone, and you're so happy that they charge you $9,000 to fix your phone, right? So there. It we've had a priestly engagement, we have a sacred space, we have an intermediate person, right, and we have a sacrifice and a transaction. And so Peter, Peter is letting us know that, that ultimately, um, no matter who we are, where we are, whatever country we're in, whatever uh, obstacles we have, persecuted or rich or based or bound, struggle or not, there's, there's a core identity for every believer. And before we're married, before we're a brother or sister, before we belong to this church or that church or that denomination, right, at the essence of it, we are either uh, born again or not, and the key qualifying thing that he wants us to understand is that we are temples, we are priests, and we are living sacrifices. And so um, part of my um, kind of conviction and, and, and thought process in reading this passage today, you know, as I'm thinking about, you know, things going on in Afghanistan and things going on around, you know, the nation and things, it, is, is um, it, really, it really brings you to this principal question is like, what if it all falls apart? What if What if the the homes that I've built for myself, the identities that I have in my corporate world, in the national world, in the neighborhood world, like what if it all falls apart? What if tomorrow a bomb is dropped and we can't come to church anymore? What if we were on the other side of the world hiding in a cave this morning, wondering about where the next meal would come from? If all of the homes were all deconstructed and all fell apart, if they all fell down on sinking sand, what would be the rock that I would build my life on? What would you do tomorrow morning if you didn't have and a national identity or a neighborhood identity to buy into. What if you only had Jesus as your home? And so I came to this place. If we are all all temples, you know, and if we're all in Christ, priests that live in the temple, and therefore we are all offering sacrifices, I would probably concur, and maybe you'd concur as well, that tomorrow morning, if it all fell apart and our spouse, you know, left us or um, our job fell apart and the world fell apart and our health fell apart and all the things that we have confidence to find home in, we, we will never lose this home. And that is the home uh, of the priest of prayer. This is what fundamentally I see, you know, the scripture, and we're going to kind of work it through here, of what it would mean to be a temple, what it means mean to be a priest, and what it means mean to be a sacrifice. The most important thing is prayer. We would wake up tomorrow, right? And no matter how, world our, how big our world would be, if we were, woke up tomorrow in a prison cell, if we woke up tomorrow in an ICU unit, if we woke up tomorrow in a cubicle, if we woke up tomorrow in your home, if we woke up tomorrow, you know, in a world where church could not be gathered, All these things could get stripped away, but what could not get stripped away is our prayer because as long as we have breath, we could inhale, trust, and exhale thanks. Tomorrow, if we woke up and we couldn't gather for 10 a.m. or whatever and do service or do small group, this is what I think the scripture would infer to us about who we are that can never be lost. We are always priests, and therefore, we always have an opportunity, however much space we have, if it was a little prison, to create a temple of that prison. Whatever is in your six-foot radius is your atmosphere and your environment. And the Apple Store is specialized in selling iPads and our specialty should be prayer and should be praise. And if it's making your bed and if it's doing your cubicle the right way and it's writing the email, there's one thing that we are always doing, whether it's Adam and Eve all the way to Jesus all the way to today, is cre- it's taking this, this latent place of great potential and leveraging songs and leveraging work and leveraging the way that we drive our car and doing everything for worship. It would be inhaling trust and exhaling, ex- exhaling thanks with the people that we're entrusted to The people that that talk to us, that would come to us at the Genius Bar, so to speak, with their needs, and we would groan and petition and intercede as priests, no matter where we are, we would always have the ability to inhale, trust, and exhale thanks. Um, With regard to um, the things that we have, in order to share and demonstrate and illustrate the gospel to others, to share God with others, um, as a living sacrifice, we are always, first and foremost, priests, priests that are able to always inhale trust and exhale uh, praise. Now, the analogy kind of continues on in, in 1 Peter, and it kind of d- deliberates the thing to show us that Christians are all temples, priests, and sacrifices, but so are non-Christians, that actually all men and all women are builders of different temples and sacrificial systems, but maybe they're built with different materials and on different foundations. So here's kind of how it goes. He says, uh, for, this is First Peter speaking to the identity of all men, not just Christians in this sense. He says, For in the scriptures, it says, I've laid a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and all who trust in him will never be put to shame. He speaks of a temple that is built, living stones that are built on a certain foundation, with a priesthood and a sacrificial system. He says, Now, there are some who find that cornerstone. They find it precious, and they believe in it. But some do not. He says, To those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. So you guys, maybe after have the architecture. I mean, a great translation for a cornerstone is simply the foundation. It would be the corner of a house, you know? And if I was a general contractor, and I started to build my house over here and realized the cornerstone was over here, I would move the house. I wouldn't move the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the immovable rock that doesn't ever change. That's the thing to build your house on. And what Peter is Essentially arguing here is not just Christians, but every man and woman and child is a builder. They are builders and they're not builders necessarily with stones. Not all of us are architecture people or go to Clemson and do all that kind of stuff, right? But all people are builders. All people wake up in the morning and they decide coffee or decaf. They decide to live in Simpsonville or in Greenville. They decide to be married or single. They decide to uh, take this kind of a job. They decide to spend this money. They decide to build a life. You got up this morning and you, like it or not, began building, you began building your day in a certain way. By what you ate and what you, what, what you decided to do, what you're saying, what you're thinking, you are making consecutive thousands and thousands of decisions that is ultimately building stuff. And you're not just building a day, you're ultimately building habits and character and a life. You're building a life. And so the scripture is saying no matter what it is that you're doing, you're building something. And what's most important about what you're building is not so much the materials, but the foundations. You guys have uh, all. Probably seen the three little pigs, right? What happened to those three little pigs? The three little pigs, you know, they got up, and the moral of the story is, you know, some built it with straw, and some built it with sticks, and some built it with stone. And what happens? The big bad wolf comes and blows it all down, and what, what creates the survival of the building is the materials, right? That's the idea. But what the gospel is saying, and what Peter is saying to us about identity, is that the materials of the building is not what, what institutes the survival, but the foundation of it. See that? So, so it's, not, it's not saying that you know, if you build your house with college degrees, then it's gonna survive, and if you are uneducated, then you're not gonna survive. That's not what it says, right? It doesn't say you know, if you build your house with um, hard work and uh, you're not lazy and you work seven days a week, it's gonna survive, and if you don't work hard enough, it's all gonna fall apart. It doesn't say that. What it says is that you are going to have a life that doesn't fall based on the fact that it's on the foundation of a cornerstone, And even more than that, one of the things that is unsettling and maybe even disturbing as we really allow it to sink in, is it's saying that um, as people go out there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays, they go and build their life the way we do, jump out of bed to go and build stuff. It's not that people come to the cornerstone, right? Or no, it's not that people are going through life and they miss the cornerstone like I didn't see where the cornerstone was. It actually says people, all people, men, women, all ages, they come to this cornerstone, they don't miss it, and, 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 and they reject it. Like, in other words, it's not that we walk through life and we didn't see Jesus, and then, oh, I guess we didn't understand what it was. It's that all men, all women, are coming to this place at the cornerstone and they're rejecting the cornerstone of Jesus. He must not be to the taste or to the value system or to the obvious uh, overtness of value for the, for, the, for the common man, right, to come by, but people are seeing the cornerstone of Jesus, and it's not that they're missing him; they're they're rejecting him. So, I was um, thinking about this uh, story that I heard over the week of um, of this preacher, and it stuck out to me, um, and uh, and uh, it just kind of stuck with me for this for the passage. and And so, basically, it was a story of um, this guy. There's this big conference, you know. So there'll be these big conferences, and you guys have seen these. There are the pamphlets, and there's the speakers. And there's these really famous speaker people, and, um, and you pay a bunch of money, and we'll all go out to the speaker, and it's a really great thing. It's like these conferences, and they're great. And so um, he said that he got this call, and it was just like way out of the blue, because he's a smaller preacher in the smaller little church and everything, and they gave him the call, and they said, we've been watching da 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 on the YouTubes, and, you know, we uh, would love for you to come and speak on this big thing, which is like all the big people in the big churches and the big thing. And here's all the money. And he's like, here's the place you're going to stay and you're going to show your parents and you're going to be, or you're going show your, your wife and your kids and it's going to be a great time. You should come out to it. And he's feeling so great about it. And then, and then they close the, they close the conversation with this one little sentence. Have you ever been invited to do something that you're so excited and then something at the very end just kind of makes you feel a little slimy. They said something like, so-and-so, John Doe, we want you to know that the people that are coming to speak at this conference thing um, are really big names. They're these high profile people. And he said, we feel that you, speaker guy, belong on that list. And we, big conference people, are going to make sure that you sit there with those people. And he said, that sounds okay. And he hung up the phone and he said he did not feel good about it at all. And so um, he took a moment to process and pray. And actually he was going to do it, he said. And he shared the idea with his wife and with his kids. And here's all the hotel thing. And he was trying to jump up the excitement, but he just didn't feel right about it. And then he remembered um, that uh, just the week before, that he had scheduled the first prayer meeting for the elders uh, in this little attic um, in their church, and that if he were to go to the conference, that he would miss the prayer meeting. And he was talking to the Lord, and he didn't necessarily feel like the Lord was telling him that you either had to go here or go there, but it was this question, this, this, this convicting impasse that was put before this individual preacher, where the Lord was just saying, but what really matters in the decision that you make is what you value more Do you value the applause of strangers or the intimacy of the Father more? As you make your decision, whichever decision that you make, I think ultimately he didn't go to the thing, you want to evaluate your heart. At the end of the day, life is a a set of options that's building a life, and it's built on what you value, what you reject, and what you count precious. And what God was asking this guy to consider is, what do you consider more important, more precious to you? The affirmation of strangers or the intimacy with the Father? And so this is the, the tenuous part about this thing is, again, it's not that Jesus is um, discreet and we can't find him. It's that he's overt and we reject him. He's not palatable enough to us, says the scriptures. He's not interesting enough to us. He's not attractive to us. He, he's, he's, he's maybe the best way to talk about it from mom's point of view. He's more broccoli than cheesecake, maybe. He's just, he's not flashy, right? And so you're going through your phone, right? So I was on my phone this week and there's, a political post. And the political post is angry politician one is yelling at angry politician two. And it doesn't even matter what side it is, but they're just all here, right? So, and the language in it was like, this guy is such a jerk and this person is so toxic and this person is such an idiot and if you vote for me and you go to this, we're gonna all take over the world and it's all gonna be great, right? And so what the scripture is saying is that there is more than one building and more than one temple and more than one stone or sand at least, foundation to build your life on. And Jesus will not be loud and shout out he will not be uh, appealing to our flesh and he will not um, all the time be precious to us just at face value. See, that's the reality is that if, if every man is a temple, if every man is a priest, if every woman is some kind of a sacrifice for something, then what we have in the marketplace of our ideas and our ideals is, is we're all trying to preach about how to get to the good place. And what the politician is essentially saying is, if you trust me, I will take you to the temple. I will take you to the place where Eden can be restored. I will take you to the place where I can get rid of that political party and this group. I can take you to the place and bring you to the promised land. I can be your Moses. I can bring you to the temple. I can bring you to the space where it's clean and where there's peace. And if you vote for me, I can be your temple. And then you scroll through and there's a celebrity, right? And the celebrity has the genes and they're ripped just the right way. And they, they've got um, a way of life and they're 20. They're the 20-year-old version or the 30-year-old version or the 40-year-old version. And what they're essentially doing is saying, I can be your priest, I can be your image. I can show you what the good life is like. I can tell you how to be married. I can tell you how to cook right. I can tell you how to exercise and get a six pack, right? And so the celebrity is is trying to tell us a life, a, a stone or cornerstone to build our life upon. And some of us will count Jesus as precious compared to that and some of us won't. There will be another gospel message. Like there is a gospel message that says that he died for us, that we could live as him. But there are many gospel messages all throughout our, our life, our lifetime, whether it's in real world or, or virtual world. And they're telling us good news things like for sixty nine ninety five, if you make this sacrifice, I can make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that is, that is the gospel. That is a gospel. There is, a, there is a, a good news gospel for every identity and every temple. And what ultimately is happening is, is, is it's saying is that many, many men and women will build their house on something that is not the temple of Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus, And the sacrifice of Jesus, and we won't know it until it's too late, because he'll be too boring for us and too common for us and too plain for us and not loud enough and not clear enough and not angry enough, right, or whatever, and it will be broccoli and not cheesecake, and we will reject and not count as precious. And so the engagement of Jesus in the Gospels towards the temple analogy, if we were to take Peter's map of the icon of the temple and ask Jesus what he thinks about the temple, we can actually find a rendition of this in all four of the different Gospels, but one of them I thought was really helpful for us uh, this morning um, is in the book of Matthew, where Jesus visits uh, the temple, the cleansing of the temple. It happens in all four gospels, but this is what it says in Matthew verse 12, and I can't remember the chapter reference, but it'll be, oh, 21, there on the screen. Jesus enters the temple, the temple courts, and it says he drives out all who were buying and selling there. So the temple was designed, again, to inhale trust and exhale praise. The place where God meets with man is the place where man simply inhales trust and exhales thanks. That's what man is always supposed to do. He is meant to be in a garden, not to create his own kingdom, but God's. He is there to work and to keep. And the temple is just an image. It's just a metaphor to discern the identity of what should be happening uh, within our you know, six-foot temples here, as well as our gathering of temple here, the collection of saints together. And if there's one thing that we should do when we are on our own before the Lord or together before the Lord, it's prayer. We should be filling our hearts and our lives and our minds and our actions with inhaling of trust and exhaling of thanks. When Jesus finds the temple, whether it's you and me individually or us corporately, what he often does not find is prayer. What he often finds is profit and power. And so he makes a court of whips and he drives out the money changers. This is not what the temple is for. The temple is not for the greatest political bitter. The temple is not for celebrity priests and athletes and different images and idols. The, the, the temple is not for our own self-image, our own idolatry. The temple is for prayer. The temple is meant for God to be with man again. He comes in and there's obstruction, there's tables, there's profiteering, there's corruption within the temple. And Jesus <clears throat> says, this will not do. He says, verse 13, it is written, he says to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. then it says in verse 14, a picture of what the temple was always meant to be because the temple was just God's dwelling with man. Eden was the temple. The ark was the temple. The tabernacle was the temple. And the temple is the temple, but David didn't come up the temple. God had the temple from day one because he always wants to be with man. And this is what the vision was supposed to be, not for profiteering and for power and for self-realization and imaging, but for prayer and listen that man would come to the temple for prayer and meet God who has come to the temple to heal. Verse 14, the blind and the lame, this is what church is. This is what temple is. And if everything fell apart tomorrow, what we should wake up inhaling and exhaling to see that we might come with prayer and he might come with healing. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. That's church to Jesus. Verse 15, the chief priests and the teachers, they were angry. They felt, they, they felt that he was disrupting the status quo and the order, and so instead of counting him precious, they counted him rejected. And they rejected him. There it is, right there. Happens all the time, even in church. The law saw, uh, the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the courts, Susanna's son and David, and they were indignant. And so um, uh, I, was, uh, I was watching um, uh, The Chosen. Uh, we're in season two now, I think, and The Chosen obviously is a. Is a um, Uh, interpretive way of explaining the Bible. Obviously, there's tons of things that are not in the scriptures per se, but it's like a narrative interpretation of of the scripture. And the second um, season begins, and and one of them caught my eye in this one episode. It was the episode of uh, Simon the Zealot and uh, the the lame crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. I don't know if you guys have seen this before. Maybe some of you guys. um, Maybe not take too long to catch up. But but it was interesting because on the one hand, you had this character who is super... um, Well, zealous. He was a militant Israeli person who saw uh, soldiers kick and defile and defame his father from a young age. And so he made a promise in his heart from the beginning of the story, and it's all figurative or all like, you know, not from the scripture, but it's like narrative interpretation, that he was um, not going to be weak, but he was gonna be strong. And he was going to channel his pain and his energy, and he was going to grow to become a freedom fighter for the Israelites. And, and it was a true thing that actually happened in history that many, some of these disciples actually were like freedom fighters and soldiers and, and so forth, that they were going to train themselves up to, uh, you know, evacuate themselves and, and to, um, to kick out the foreign invaders, the Gentiles of the Romans. And so he gave his life to being a soldier. Um, then it shows in this parallel discourse, this other story of, um, in that show, it was his brother, um, of the paralytic, and, and, and oftentimes, I think it's really interesting that the chosen will do this, is that oftentimes we see the outcome of a person's life in the story, but we don't see the origins of it, and so it backs you up to the origins where it shows the kid falling out of the tree. In the years of life, it says that he's been waiting in, you know, by the pool of Bethesda for, for, for decades or whatever, ten, dozens of years, that he's been waiting, and it shows his suffering as a young boy watching other kids grow up and so forth, and it shows his pain, and it shows how every time he tries to get to the edge of the pool, like in John chapter can't remember exactly what chapter it is, but the book of John, when he's trying to get to the pool and the angel stirs it up, he can't quite get there and in his might, and his works, he can't get to his healing. And Jesus comes to both of them and he speaks different words to different places, but the story is suggesting, I think, in a very accurate way, as we kind of land on this scripture today, that the foundations of the two different men, both the one that was built on pain and the other one that was built on pride, that ultimately both of them were built from the same foundation of sin. The pain can often disguise itself as pride and pride can often disguise itself as pain, but neither of those things are healed. And so it's possible to build our lives on many different foundations. And what the scriptures continues on into the next verse, if I could, if I could read it in verse 16, is actually saying, if I could say with a little more clarity beyond just you know, the Bible study answer, you know, what are you supposed to build your house on? Jesus, right? right? But what the scripture is actually saying is going further than that. It's not just saying that you should build your life on Jesus, but, that, but the scripture is inviting us that those that are going to see their life not fall in the sand are not just building our, their lives on Jesus, but on his message. They're building his, their lives on the gospel. This is what it says, that the stumbling group, the ones who reject Jesus and do not count him precious, um, they are qualified. They're not, they're not qualified because they know about Jesus. They're not qualified because they read their Bible a lot. They're not qualified because they go to church. They're not, they're not qualified by any of these other things, but because, this is what the language that Peter is going to use, they're qualified, they do not stumble because they obey rather than disobey. And that doesn't say Jesus, it says the message. It means the gospel. The houses are built, and without knowing the future, are built on different foundations. And the sustainability of the houses are not based on the materials it's built with, but the foundation it's built upon. And the foundation is not, do you know who Jesus is, but have you been healed by him? See, the thing that I think that the chosen is getting at there is that there is a compelling and even effective and strong and successful life that could all ultimately be built on pride. That pride is a powerful foundation to build life upon. The ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make a name for ourselves, and be good people that become great people with God, or, or, or rich people that become generous people with God, or busy people that become restful people with God, there, there is a way to build with Christian materials on non-Christian foundations. There's a way to know about Jesus without being healed by him, and what the gospel would want to ask us today is not what are you doing um, on your own, but what has Jesus done for you in your pride and in your pain? that pain itself is a wonderful motivator. And there are many people that have done great things to run from pain, that you could raise your family and go to college and even do ministry and do a lot of stuff that is really just based on a foundation that is not ultimately about healing, but it's about pain and about the inebriation of pain, and the running from pain, and the insulation from pain. And so none of this stuff matters, the things that are are being done or the materials that are being built with, so much as the foundation it's been built upon. And so the gospel question that would meet us today is this question, not what have you built with, but what have you built on? And this is the question I may be asked to you today, is what has Jesus done with your pride and your pain? Because that, in the end, is the only thing that matters. There are not Non-prideful people that just buddy up with Jesus and then build something great, and non-people that are not in pain that just figure it out and, you know, build great lives with Jesus. It is people, all people that have pride and pain that are either healed or not. The inspector will come to my house, you know, just sold the house, and if the inspector says something's wrong, then it's wrong. And if the people that buy it, you know, go to their inspector thing, and there's something wrong with the foundation, that's a big problem if the foundation's wrong. And He's saying that, that life and Jesus himself will come and inspect our house and what will make it withstand is not what it's built with, but what it's built upon. And it will be either be built upon healing or pride and pain. And so Jesus looks to us, he would look to you and he looked to me today about our life, because we're all builders of one temple or another, of one priesthood or another, and ask this question, as he asked so many of them in the gospels, do you want to be healed today? because at the end of the day, he is not inviting us to go and give him something great and offer up our talents and do something great for him. But we come to the temple for one reason, and there's only one reason to be healed. We are his temple and his priesthood to come to him in prayer and in praise to inhale trust and exhale thanks that we might be healed in him. And that is the only reason why the temple exists. Every temple is an icon and it points to a spiritual reality, and every spiritual reality and icon is essentially giving an identity. This is what he says is true about the real temple, not just the four walls of a church, but the real temple, the living, breathing body of Christ that will endure and live into eternity. He says in verse 9, it's a chosen priesthood. It's a royal priesthood. It's a chosen line, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare praises of him who called you out of darkness into light. Every every temple is essentially a good space. And every priest that lives in the temple is offering a good life. And every sacrifice is preaching a good news. And this is the good news that the temple of God is preaching. It is not preaching, work harder or serve the poor or be more friendly or be more chipper. It is preaching, be healed. It is preaching, you were in darkness and now you're healed in his light. You were not a people. You did not have a name you were abandoned and you were not treated well by your parents and you have father wounds and father issues and you continue to live that out and you are choosing to build your life on either living from that pain and hurt or being healed. And this is what the temple has come to do. Once you were a people, not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy and now you have received mercy. In other words, most of this world says you give the sacrifice so that you can get mercy. But Jesus says, I am the temple and I am the Sabbath and I deserve and I just and I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so, most places you go, whether it's the Apple Store or any other temple, the idea is you give the sacrifice and then you get the mercy. Pay the parking ticket and you get the fine removed right from the police department. That's how that works. But in the gospel, it's the exact opposite it's we offer the sacrifice because we've received the mercy. We're the children of that temple who have come in prayer that have been healed. And so, there is only one gospel and therefore only one foundation and every other thing is sand. And we will not find out until. Until it's too late, until it's too late. Um, if we put our feet on the wrong, wrong foundation, and so ultimately, this is the gospel that is pro- proclaimed in First Peter chapter two. It is that we were called out of darkness into light. That we were not a people, and now a people. And we um, did not receive mercy, and now we do. And so, I thought I would put up a few questions uh, for the sake of our groups and for individual discussion and, and thought. But if every person is a temple that's building on a different foundation. I wonder what you would think you have been building your life upon. It really does come out of the story. It comes out of how you explain when somebody asks you what's your story and who are you and what are you about. And when you look at the life that you're building, it is telling a story. The choices that you're making are all headed somewhere and it's counting something precious and something rejected. And it's all coming and gathering around one temple, one temple or another, either Jesus or somebody else's. And I'm just asking, and the scripture I believe is asking me and us together, are we building on something proud or something healed? Are we building on something that is sand or something that is rock? What are you building your life on? Number two, every person is imaging. I used to go to Hong Kong for the summer, and it's just so funny when you spend time with people of a different accent, your accent begins to change. Have you ever noticed that? You spend time around people, and you begin to image them. And the scripture is telling us that's not an that's not a, 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 a unjustified uh, explanation of who human beings are. We're made to image someone. And so when you listen to the way that you talk and the stories that you tell and the things that you celebrate and the things that you correct, I wonder who you image. Jesus is the only image, the representation of Jesus. And so as a holy priesthood, who do you image? And lastly, what do you sacrifice for? What keeps you up at night? What are you willing to blood, sweat, and tears for? Get the extra pound of flesh for? What were you willing to give? Because ultimately, there's only one sacrifice and there's the sacrifice that responds to um, his mercy. And so um, I'll leave you with those questions and uh, invite us today just to respond, I think appropriately, just in prayer. If there's anything that we would do to gather in a place like this, if persecution were to get worse in this country, or if it wasn't to be, if it would continue on without persecution, if we would continue on with our homes and our um, things intact, um, our our, our lives that we've kind of tracked out and built up, if they would continue on undisrupted, or if they begin to be really, really disrupted, We would never change from the invitation to inhale trust and exhale thanks. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.